Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This story occurred in the summer of 2008. I grew up in Oregon and was acquainted with the outdoors at an early age. My favorite hobby came to be hiking particularly in areas that are either very dangerous or isolated. The health benefits of hiking were secondary to the thrills of walking the edges of exposed cliffs, being in cougar and bear territory, and knowing that I was far from help. Into the Wild was released in the fall of 2007, and I immediately fell in love. Being a high school senior, I felt imprisoned in my parents' house. A teenager with wild eyes, the movie spoke to my sense of adventure. It inspired me to hike the California portion of the Pacific Crest Trail, PCTI, upon graduation. For the uninitiated, the PCT is a 2700 north-south trail from the border of Mexico to that of Canada. It traverses deserts, forests, and mountains. It ranges from sea level to 13,000 feet elevation. The reason I tell you this is because, needless to say, some parts of the trail are more remote than anything you can imagine. 
You aren't hiking outside of Los Angeles and San Francisco here. You're hiking through hundreds of miles of untamed wilderness in what is essentially the Wild West. I made it from the Mexico border to Northern California without much incident. I happened upon rattlesnakes and black bears, experienced legitimate dehydration, but nothing happened that made me fear for my life. Somewhere in the Lassen National Forest in northeastern California, I walked around a bend in the trail only to be startled by two people sitting on a rock dressed in nearly all white. Their faces were dirty, their appearance disheveled, and the man had a long, unkempt beard. Both seemed to be in their forties. They looked like the couple who kidnapped Elizabeth Smart. What struck me as odd about the encounter was encountering anybody at all. I frequently went days without seeing a single human being on the PCT. Their white clothes could be explained away by the need to escape the California summer sunner. Their scruffy appearance could be explained away by the fact that most thru-hikers abandon personal hygiene on the trail. After I said hello, they said nothing and simply watched me as I passed. Even that I didn't find odd. I chalked it up to them being foreign and not knowing what to say. I camped a few hundred yards off the trail that night, as I always did. Following bare precautions, I hung the leftover food I had cooked that night from a tree approximately five feet off the ground. Packing up camp in the morning, I noticed the food wasn't there. I immediately thought a bear had entered my campsite, and so I began to look for paw prints. I didn't find paw prints, but I did find boot prints circling the campsite. Two pairs of them. One of those prints led right up the rope from which the food was hanging. I thought of the couple I had passed earlier, and everything clicked. I quickly packed up and left. My mind was racing the entire day, but I figured the couple was simply hungry. If they had nefarious intentions, they would have come for more than the food. Several days passed, and my mind was at ease again. I had begun to circle my campsite with sticks to wake me in the event of an intruder, animal or otherwise. Ah, woke in my tent one night to the sound of those sticks crunching. I grabbed my hunting knife. I tried to relax by telling myself that in the middle of nowhere, the source of that noise is much more likely an animal than a person. Then I heard frantic whispering. It was impossible to tell which direction the voices were coming from. Being in the dark, surrounded by trees a hundred miles from the nearest city, plays tricks on your senses. I debated yelling out, claiming to have a gun, but instead decided to be silent and retain the benefit of surprise. I heard footsteps circling my tent and was ready to slash in whatever opened it. But just like that, it was over. No more footsteps, no more whispering. I lied frozen awake in my tent until sunrise and opened my tent to find nobody there. The only evidence something had actually happened were the boot prints, the same as before. Several more days passed, and I was now in Shasta National Forest, probably fifty to seventy-five miles from where I first encountered the couple. The trail became more or less a goat trail. Being on the side of a mountain and above the tree line, I could see the trail winding for miles in front of and behind me. I stopped for water in the rare shade and noticed two hikers miles behind me. All I could see were two white dots moving along the mountainside. I immediately said out loud this, this trip is over. I pulled out my map and looked for the nearest town, which appeared to be Castella, located off I-5. The only problem was that it was 25 miles away. 
I hiked well into the night trying to gain as much ground as possible. I kept losing the trail and decided to set up camp, this time far off the trail and into the forest. I got in my tent and tried to sleep, but every little noise kept me awake. After a few hours in my tent, I heard the telltale sounds of another bad night. The footsteps, the whisper, the sticks breaking. Sound travels far in the absence of other sound. I knew they were close, but wasn't sure how close. All I could think was, this is messed up, this is so messed up, but goddammit. Finally, a flashlight hits my tent, lights up the entire thing, and goes dark. I unzipped my tent and climbed out, carrying my knife, yelling nonsense into the dark. It was sort of like that cliché scene in movies where people in the wilderness hear sticks breaking around them and the camera pans around the trees because the people have no idea which direction the sound is coming from. Then I heard footsteps running towards the tent and barely made out a figure moving in my peripheral vision. I turned and ran deep into the forest. I tripped several times and ran into several trees. After running for approximately five minutes, I tripped rolled and came to rest next to a downed tree. I got under the tree trunk and laid still. I saw the flashlight moving around in the distance. I laid under that tree for hours. I was certain they were gone, but I didn't move. Eventually, birds started chirping, and I knew sunrise would come soon. Once it did, I made my way back to the trail, abandoned my campsite, and walked the rest of the distance to Castella, where the PCT crosses I-5. I hitchhiked my way to the town of Mount Shasta and spoke with the police and forest service. They put me up in a motel for the night, and my parents drove from Oregon to pick me up the next day. I followed up with the police and forest service months later, who told me there had been similar reports of items disappearing from campsites throughout the surrounding national forests. However, there had been no other reports of the terrorizing that I experienced. As far as I know, nothing ever came of the couple. I was camping in the Los Padres National Forest with my older brother at a spot we frequented. Before we went to bed, we heard this screaming off on the hillsides. It sounded like a woman crying, but screaming at the same time. We ignored it since it seemed far away and decided to go to bed. We're woken up in the middle of the night by something massive circling the tent and the same screaming. We kept still for over 30 minutes, trying not to move at all. My brother and I were mind-blown by the size of the visitor. It would touch the tent every one in a while, but at the very top, without getting off, it's four feet. Eventually, it left the camp. The next morning, there were plenty of prints revealing a massive mountain lion. I'm used to seeing mountain lion tracks where I grew up, but these made anything I've seen before look small. My heart raced as I stood at the edge of the newly established wildlife reserve. As a park ranger, I was part of a team assigned to oversee the reserve, nestled deep within the forest. It wasn't long before we discovered that the area was plagued by a terrifying presence, a bloodthirsty werewolf. The full moon illuminated the eerie landscape, casting ominous shadows on the surrounding trees. The other rangers and I could feel a growing sense of unease as the night crept upon us. 
The beast that we now knew haunted these woods had already claimed several lives, leaving the nearby community living in fear. As we huddled together, our radios crackled to life, and a breathless reporter shared her startling discovery. The mysterious deaths in the area were linked to a dark family curse, one that had turned a local man into the werewolf that now stalked us. The reporter, Jane, was desperate to break the curse and save the reserve from becoming a supernatural hunting ground. We knew we had no choice but to join forces with Jane if we were to have any chance of survival. Our training and resourcefulness would be put to the ultimate test as we ventured into the heart of the forest, searching for the cursed man and the key to breaking the curse. The hours that followed were a blur of terror and adrenaline. As the werewolf closed in on us, we fought tooth and nail to stay alive. Each one of my fellow rangers fell victim to the beast. One by one, their screams echoing through the darkened woods. I was determined to be the last one standing, fighting for the lives of those who had already been lost. In the end, it was Jane who discovered the ancient ritual needed to break the curse. We worked together, our hands shaking with fear as we recited the incantation beneath the light of the full moon. The werewolf's agonized howls pierced the air as the curse lifted, leaving the man it had once consumed lying naked and trembling on the forest floor. With the curse broken, the werewolf was gone, never to return. I stood there, the last of the park rangers surveying the scene of our harrowing ordeal. The wildlife reserve was safe, but the price we had paid was almost too much to bear. Around 23 on last week Friday, I was out on a very late night stroll near a farm I lived by, trying to find a good spot to set up my telescope for some stargazing. Now I started to hear cows mooing. Not sure how many, but I thought nothing of this since it is a cow farm and I hear it all the time. However, when I stopped to set up for some stargazing, the moon suddenly got very close, as if it was almost right in front of me. The land the cows are on is quite big, so it would take some time to get from one side to the other. When I first heard the mooing, it was pretty far away, but this time it wasn't. It was if they had somehow teleported. When I called out because I thought someone had just been playing a prank on me, I heard this growl like never before. I packed up my crap and bolted out of there since I'd heard of skinwalkers in my area. Back in high school, I would go on hikes with a small group of friends pretty often. One of my friends worked at a donut shop, so he would usually bring a dozen of donuts for everyone to eat before the hike. One day, we all show up to hike around 8 a.m., and it's business as usual. We all park at the usual spot. My friend shows up with the donuts. We eat the donuts, and we're on our way. That day, only like five or six people showed up to hike, so there were leftover donuts, about four or five leftover donuts. Where we parked was distant from any road and pretty secluded, so we didn't think much of just leaving the box of leftover donuts on the hood of my friend's car while we hiked. The hike back down was solely fueled by the thought of having another donut, so we were excited. When we finally got back to the cars and opened the box of donuts, we saw that each donut had one single bite taken out of them, like if someone just came by and decided to try every donut and put them back. 
The trail was empty that day, so another hiker eating our donuts was unlikely, and it could have been an animal, but the bite seemed to be a human's bite, and the donuts were neatly put back. We figured it might have been a bum or a homeless person, but even that seemed far-fetched to us. Whoever or whatever ate our donuts that day is either extremely indecisive or extremely considerate. A long time ago before photos were relevant in Alaska, my ancestors lived in harmony with the little people. Yes, their next-door neighbors and shit. They lived like that for a while until one day one of the dogs of the native people ate one of the little people's baby. As it had stumbled too close to the dog, food was scarce to try and keep every single dog pack well fed. The little people leader met with the native leader and suggested that they put down the dog and all would be forgiven. Mind you, this was the native's finest dog and was the leader for many years and he decided against it. Yes, I know it's kind of petty, and I will never understand why he couldn't sacrifice one dog, as great as he was, and try and craft another leader to keep peace between the peoples. As you'd imagine, both sides split up, and it's been that way ever since. It does fascinate me how life would be so much different if the native leader complied with the deal. I do wonder how it would be to live with them time to time. Anyway, one winter night in cold-ass Alaska at around 5 a.m., I went outside to smoke a cigarette. It was unnervingly quiet and dark, as it usually is that time of night. I live in a really, really, really small town that barely stretches across a mile long. Outside of my house, there is one LED light connected to an electric pole that's about a block or two away. There's never anyone out riding their machines or four-wheelers that time of night. Rarely ever is someone walking around, let alone running. I'm smoking my cigarette, and about halfway through, I saw it. At the corner of my eye, at first I thought it was someone taking a jog. But who would be jogging at 5 a.m. on a cold winter night? Not insulting my town, but no one runs here low, not outside at least. There are some white teachers who do run, but all the teachers were out of town, back with their families in their home state as it was Christmas season. It was also snowing lightly. I turned to look, and oh, fair. This seven-foot mother F was just blasting down the street. I'm talking the same bolt shit going for that gold. I'm not really great at height perception, but I know he was at minimum six feet eight seven. But here's where it gets creepy. When you run, you move your arms right. It's just instinct, and I believe it does help you go faster with the right form. When I saw it, both arms were tucked on the side of his hips. No arms moving, but those legs were going at least 20-25 miles per hour. I was surprised at this point, but then I noticed something else it was doing. It watched me as it ran by. I can see the park of rough outlines at the top of its body facing towards me the whole time it was in sight. No arms moving, only legs looking at me as it burned through the road. Now, I did say there was bright LED light a couple blocks away from my house, and it faces toward my place, but that didn't do any help in trying to scope out its facial features, especially since the light was on the side as it was running, 
and completely on the other side of its face as it was looking towards me. I watched it go by as it just watched me also. It felt like an eternity, but really it was only about a 10-15 second encounter. Right behind it, a fox was chasing him, almost like it was its pet or something. Although it's widely known in the state big and little people have supernatural powers, one of which is being able to transform into an animal it chooses. So I really don't know if that was its buddy or its pet. I'll never know. As soon as both of them were out of my sight, I went further onto the porch to see where they went. My friend, when I told him about that part, said, E, what if it just turn around and run towards you when you do that? That made me realize how dumb I actually was trying to observe its whereabouts, and that I never in a million years would go further onto the porch just to see it again. After I saw it had gone, I couldn't fathom what I just saw until later. But I noped the F back inside, even my cigarette was unfinished. I didn't even put it in the cigarette container, just flew it across the yard LMAO. I went inside, continued on like it never even happened. Went to sleep, and I wouldn't talk about it for another year or so. I have no idea why, but when I did finally tell my said friend mentioned above, he immediately said the native word we have for tall people. A lot of my people choose to doubt me whenever I tell them about it, and it infuriates me because our culture has been involved with these kinds of beings for hundreds of years. We have a lot of folklore stories, but we also have a bunch of accounts based on true encounters. If you read up on supernatural beings in native Alaska, there are some horrific ones that will straight up scare the shit out of you. This happened a long time ago, and I do think of it time and time again. Like, why? Why did it do that to me of all people? I always heard stories of my friends running into little people, and I never did saw them before. I would just be like men. I wish I can run into a little person or something. Or something I recall saying that a bunch of times. It's possible that one of their supernatural powers could sense this. Like, almost mocking me, this is what you wanted to see, huh? I wouldn't go out to places at night unless I had a ride, because who knows what it would do if I saw it again. This went on for about a year, then I kind of just forgot about it, I guess. Nowadays I can walk alone at night and be much less worrisome. I've done it countless times since then, and if it wanted to do something to me, it damn sure would by now. People tell me that they choose who can see them and who can't. Their stealth is unmatched, and only a select few can see the big and little people. That's why I wonder, hmm, why me? Why did it choose to do that to me? Was it just to quench my thirst for the supernatural telling me this shit is real? I'll never know. I'm certainly not going to ask it. This is one of my desert stories. They're all true with the given disclaimer that I am only human and have made mistakes in perception and judgment the same as the rest of us. I don't drink booze to more than a light buzz most of the time and have only blacked out one, says, early in my teens. I don't really maze with weed and avoid hallucinogens. Deserts are inherently kind of overly. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Places. Even if you call one home. Dunes in particular are very odd. I know of only a few places where you can find them in my part of the world. The northernmost are the Killpecker Dunes in the red desert of southern Wyoming, then to the south, Great Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado, and further south yet are the dunes in White Sands National Park. Maybe there are others, but these are the ones I've been to many times. There are some of the few places where I feel reasonably comfortable practicing firecraft in dry seasons. They are an amazing place to learn about what you can and can't do without, and to practice more esoteric bushcraft and survival skill. These three locations are also, by amazing coincidence, where these stories take place. I'll start here with the one I've been to the most. I grew up in a high desert. They are unforgiving by their very nature. But if you can take what they throw at you, they are full of a surprising amount of life and beauty. The forests and mountains may be my sanctuary, but I fear in my heart that I am ultimately a desert creature, and the dry wind that steals away warmth and moisture also calls me home. I love the desert and the winds that allow nothing spare. I love the rocky creek beds where the bones of the fish that once gave them life blew into dust centuries ago. I love the rocky outcrops rotted away to globular, non forms by wind and ice. The desert is my home. Much like any other home, once you get used to its little tells, a sense of a place forms within you. You know when you're alone in it, when a cherished knick-knack has been moved, a four left open. Sometimes the echoes of a missing familiar sound can whisper a warning, a slight sense of offness. Sometimes, though, they can scream. The dunes of the Red Desert are not easy to get to, and depending on which part you are in, entry can be of dubious legality. I, of course, of course, would never advise going where you aren't allowed, and certainly never have in my hastier, less cautious youth. No, sir. I'd been many times, and I tried to avoid camping or tooling around out there in the same spot. Alcohol was usually hauled out. Water always was, and usually some lightweight means of defending oneself, but there isn't exactly a plethora of prey animals to feed a huge predatory population, so it's not really all that necessary. Somewhere around a decade ago, maybe more, maybe less, I took something of an on-again, off-again girlfriend of mine out to the Red Dunes, hopefully for uh, a night of fun, if not outright debauchery. 
The pretense, which she later happily confirmed was pretense for her as well, was that we were there to practice air-based water collecting techniques and firecraft. I've never been much of a smooth talker, but what can I say? Hope springs eternal. I won't use any real names, but I'll refer to her by the trait I most associate with her, so let's call her Grace. It was a drive and a half, but eventually we got there and in relative comfort. Like many young women in the Mountain West, parental worries of their daughters being stranded somewhere by buying them overbuilt sport utility vehicles with all-wheel drive and enough creature comforts to make you feel like you never left home at all. As they have the gas efficiency of a derrick fire, and Grace was nothing if not practical, she had yanked out half the seats and turned the inside into huge cargo space, including a secondary gas tank. I understand that this is not necessarily safe if done by an amateur and is typically outside of the cab in a truck bed, but whatever. Not my vehicle. Anyway, this was good, as we burned a lot of gas to get out there and the all-wheel drive was very handy. We got there around the hottest part of the day, which in the early fall isn't so bad, and hiked out to where we wanted to set up camp. I had on occasion read about them before and decided to attempt a travois with a couple of poles I had brought for the purpose. For the time expenditure of around twenty minutes of setup, and the purpose of dragging crap along the sand, I gotta say not bad, I was able to haul all of out BS out by myself around three, three and a half miles from where we parked. The dunes cover a truly huge space, and my favorite parts are of course the hardest to get to, as they tend to be the farthest from the apparatus. I don't have an issue with them necessarily, but and I like the dunes best when it's quiet enough to hear them sing. I don't understand it well enough to explain it. You have to look it up. They're what are known as living dunes, and they make a noise folks call singing. Of course, as a younger man trying, in a self-awarely stupid fashion, to impress my date with my muscles and trying to maintain a lively conversation without revealing how winded I was, don't judge, walking on shifting sands is hard. I wasn't listening for the singing of sand, but trying to catch. What Grace was saying over the wind? This story isn't about that part anyway, but I can say even with something of a bittersweet taste in my mouth now, that it was a pleasant time with a person I once loved, and I wouldn't have traded it for the world. We set up our camp in the nook between a few dunes, erecting a virginal handmade tent of Grace's design and manufacture with some difficulty and good-natured swearing. It was pretty cool. A kind of low wedge designed to be erected in high wind zones and remain warm. It had a dead air space built in, which was a pretty neat feature to my mind. Along with it, we discovered why a Dakota fire pit doesn't work well on shifting sands, which should have been obvious if either of us thought about it for more than a half second, and thoroughly chastised by the cruel dictates of basic physics, dug a regular fire pit like folks with functioning frontal lobes. We set up a few frames which held elevated tarps with stones in the middle over half-buried buckets to attempt to collect dew as well. I showed her the basics and Grace lit her first friction fire with a willow bough drill, a cottonwood baseboard, and yucca stalk spindle. This is my go-to combo in the western steppe, by the way, in only a few tries. 
As the pre-dusk light show that descends every evening, known to the natives as Golden Hour, probably to everybody for all I know, rolled across the dunes and mountains of the Red Desert like so much maple syrup, over harsh and unusually topographically variable pancakes. Grace and I were letting some stew cook over the fire while I showed her how to process yucca for fiber. We had a very pleasant evening characterized by not enough stew and too much whiskey, and a song I wrote, very much not for her except in the fact that it very much was, accompanied by one of those horrible little broom-shaped traveling guitars. As is the way of the fortunes of all young men trying to impress women who they should know have them dead to rights already, the B-string broke halfway through. If you can't make the object of your affection swoon, making them laugh their asses off isn't a bad consolation prize. We ended the night, wrapped in a blanket by the fire, watching the moon rise and the stars do their gentle revolving dance around Polaris until I carried her, snoring like bandsaw, into her sleeping bag. I settled into mine and let the sound of the wind and the singing dunes carry me to sleep. As an aside, folks who might still benefit from this advice, take time to remind yourself to remember moments like these as they happen. They are gifts, and they should be treasured as such. I rested comfortably for a while, maybe an hour or two before the whiskey reminded me of the debt I now owed it, and I went to relieve myself. I was immediately taken aback by two things. One was the ludicrous brightness of the moon despite the residing in the red desert. The Kilpecker dunes are in fact a kind of creamy tan color, and on nights with a full moon you might find darker conditions under a storm cloud in the middle of the day. The light seemed like it was pulsing a little, which I assume was probably more to do with dehydration and booze than the actual light sources. The second thing I noticed was the calm. It's almost always windy in Wyoming. It just is. I grew up there walking to school in steady 40 miles per hour winds. Calm does happen, but it's usually a relative calm, like only 8 miles per hour winds. This was still. Waking up to the calm is like waking up in a strange room you don't remember falling asleep in. Not inherently bad, per se, but disquieting and alien in a small but pervasive way. I climbed up a nearby dun because if I have to urinate, I may as well do so from a great height. The men reading this will understand, and because I wanted a good view of the surrounding area under its unusually well-illuminated condition. The only sound was my footsteps, my breath, and the gentle hum of the dunes themselves. Not even an owl to be heard. As I got to the top, a mountain came into view. Actually, several did. This isn't an unusual experience in the Rockies, as visibility can often be hundreds of miles in clear conditions and farther from elevation. What was of note was that above the ones to the north of me there were flashes and flickers of light. Thunderstorm up north was my first thought, which would have been the safe bet. But I saw no clouds past them. I then noticed the ghostly colors of the lights and realized I was watching the aurora borealis, which I was hitherto unaware could be seen from that far south. I took a moment to relax and enjoy it before scanning around me to see what other sights the moon would show me. It was then that I spotted 
down below me in a flatter area of what appeared to be many numerous four-legged creatures. Cows, sheep, antelope, hell, even deer or elk wouldn't be that strange. I honestly couldn't tell you what they were, only that where were probably more than twenty and less than fifty. More about that in a moment, but in the middle I swore I saw an old school, I kid you not, covered wagon. Not the pioneer kind, but the blockier, fully roofed shepherd's hut on wheels that dotted Wyoming like freckles a hundred and twenty years ago. Folks think it was the cattle that built the West, but Wyoming first and foremost was built on sheep. However, whatever I was seeing, it was all backlit by the moon, so they were casting shadows from the side facing me. Now, I'll be honest with you all, I don't have the absolutely clearest vision. It's not bad, better with glasses, but I don't usually bring them with me to throw a leak in the middle of the night. So when I say the movement of these critters and the wagon looked strange, almost flickery, I expect you to take it with a grain of salt. I expect you to say it had something to do with the aurora or my eyes being tired, and those are all legit. Thankfully, I have really good hearing and olfactory perception. What my mediocre vision doesn't explain is why I was looking at something probably less than a mile away, and I couldn't hear it on a still night. Wagons are noisy. They creak worse than boats, even when new. Livestock are noisy, and I'd find it odd to see a group that size with no bells around their necks. Nothing. Silence. Furthermore, why would you try to travel by night? It was bright, sure. But it's not like that's a common practice. At least, not according to anything I've ever heard. You want your critters together and easily defended from predators, that's what I understand. I watched them for a while, moving slowly across the ground, almost like they were underwater. Slow enough, I broke off a yucca stock and stuck it into the ground to mark the progress. Slow, but it was there. I stayed up there watching the lights and the procession of shadows for a long time. Eventually, I decided to whistle at them. The two fingers in the mouth, super loud, angry dad whistle. I heard it echo back at me, and then nothing. I yelled a loud hello at them as well. Echo and nothing again. Huh? No change in pace. No lights. I started to think the progress might be the moon moving across the sky and not whatever I thought it was. So, I decided to go grab my binoculars and try to wake up Grace to at least see the lights. It was a little treacherous descending, but I made it in one piece. Camp was as I had left it, and I relaxed a little. I opened the tent flap and dug around a little, found my knocks, but my attempts to rouse my lady friend were unsuccessful. She was not having it. Not at all. She rolled over and went back to sleep and chastised. I went back up to the top of the dune. It took me a little longer this time. I was definitely feeling the climb by the time I got to the crest again. It looked like a little progress had been made, according to my Yucca stock markers. Curious as hell, I decided to use the binoculars to try to make out what I was looking at. I couldn't find the shadows in the binoculars. There are two possible influences on that. One being these were old binoculars, and they had been stuck in maximum zoom since I had gotten them. The other would be it was in the wee hours of the morning, and I had several hours earlier imbibed some booze. But try and try again, nothing. 
I couldn't get eyes on the critters or the wagon. Couldn't hear them. Couldn't get a long-distance look at them. What was I to do? I said to Fed and went back to bed. Whatever I was looking at wasn't hurting me. It was just curious, and I had grown drowsy and cold lying on the cold sand. I narked the direction with one of the stalk segments, slid down the dune on my ass, and crawled back into the tent. As I lay there waiting for sleep in the warm and dark, I heard that gentle dun noise again, and the wind picked back up. My lullaby? Just as I was drifting off, though, I thought I heard a whistle echo across the sands, but from very far away. I put it down to my ears, playing tricks on me, and when I next opened my eyes, it was morning. Problem was, I was sitting next to the still crackling fire, not in the tent, and Grace was leaning against me as we sat wrapped in a blanket. I know. I know. You... This was just a dream, you deep. I can hear you just fine. There are a few problems with that hypothesis, though. One was, I put out the fire before going to bed. I'm camping in a giant ashtray with a shovel in hand. It was effortless to put out, and I remembered doing so very clearly. Another was that I was wearing shoes, which I'd done to go relieve myself, and I hadn't done since we started the fire the night before. Since I wanted a better grip on my baseboard to show Grace how to light a fire with a stick and bow, I have monkey feet, judge away. Here's another. I could see my footsteps up the dune in the trail from my impromptu derriere. Sledding session. Okay. I woke Grace up and she said that she thought we had slept in the tent. I concurred, and we sat there blearily blinking at a fire we didn't remember building. I asked her to start the coffee and climbed back up the dune, this time with my compass and my binoculars. My yucca fragments were there, and I got a heading, scoping out where I thought they were the night before. Still didn't see anything that would have made sense, so I headed back down once more on the Achik Express and talked to my girlfriend about what I had seen. She wasn't particularly freaked out by any of it, confidently told me I was still asleep or sleepwalking when I saw lights in the bizarre caravan. She was a little concerned by the lost time and not remembering getting up, but I think, to her credit, as a reasonable person, she thought I was winding her up. I wasn't offended. I was, however, racked by curiosity. What the hell had happened? I'm not a sleepwalker as far as I know, and I, as I am now, writing this, have lost time before out in the wilderness, but never before this incident. Was it just weird shadows? Had I been asleep? My markers were there, so I had been pretty lucid for someone. One simple test I thought of would confirm or deny it. I decided to throw on my boots and hike over to where I thought the trail should be by my best guess, while I let Grace do her morning routines. A short, brisk walk later, and I found nothing. No prints of any kind. This part wasn't as sandy as some others, so prints wouldn't have been everywhere, but there were none. Likelihood of sleep and booze-fueled hallucinations increasing. I did a firely Thorpa urch of a few hundred yards in several directions, leaving my water bottle as a guide for where I thought it should be. No prints. I didn't give up. I trust my senses most of the time, and I'm stubborn. 
Also, I wasn't seeing anything there, given the angle of the moon. Should have cast a shadow like that. Scrub, low brush. No trees, no boulders. I kept looking first along the route I thought they would have come from. No prints again. Something to catch my eye, though. In a less sandy patch, I saw a long stretch of depressed clay. A rut! I realized in some mild depressions in the rock here and there. A rut from a wheel made of something harder than modern tires, with a less gentle suspension. Now that I was looking for it, I saw more here and there, headed to bisect the dunes from one grassland to the next. Just an old, old trail from long ago. I don't know what any of that was. I wasn't of sober or clear mind, although I was far from blackout drunk or sleep-deprived. Grace got angry at me after a certain point of talking about it, so I stopped bringing it up. We finished out our outing. Our water collectors were successful in that they collected dew, and and unsuccessful in that it was about a cup and a half from the three of them together. We made a bolo out of some rocks and yucca cordage. Pre-made, it's a process, and... What we had made while we were there was minimal and strictly as a tutorial. We practiced that little skills, ruined some perfectly good flint in the attempt to make a pair of blades. We shared many good meals together. Still, overall, a very pleasant trip. After another couple of uneventful nights, we headed home. I hadn't discussed it with anyone since, really. I have no good explanation. I have, however, been out there again. And while I've never seen anything like that again, twice in my recollection I whistled at the top of the dunes before going to bed, and later that night I was sure I heard one back. Probably just another camper. Probably.